Hey everyone, thanks for checking into LJN Radio. I'm your host, Tim Muma, and this is Moving Up the Ladder, where we bring you experts in the world of business and employment, lending some knowledge and insight into the success of your career or business in any way we possibly can. Today, we're determining the fate of the performance appraisal and examining some other possible strategies in place of this traditional employee evaluation. Now, to break it all down, we've brought back Ron Baker, the founder of Verisage Institute, as well as a respected thought leader and consultant in the areas of business and employment. Now, Ron actually wrote a couple of LinkedIn articles on replacing the performance appraisal, which were read more than 352,000 times and elicited over 600 comments. So clearly, it's a worthwhile and hot topic. So Ron, thank you for coming on once again today. Oh, my pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me back. Definitely. Uh, you know, for those who haven't listened in the past, just wanted to give you an opportunity to get your professional experience out there and briefly describe where you're coming from and uh, just your experiences in the past. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, I'm a recovering <laughs> CPA uh, who started my career in a big eight accounting firm uh, now. And then I went and started uh, my own accounting firm. And now I am the founder of the Verisage Institute, which is a think tank that primarily works with professional firms, but all, indeed, all business people teaching in the areas of pricing and marketing and leadership and knowledge management and you know, our premise is that the world's a knowledge economy now, for mm. the most part, and we have to adjust our institutions and organizations to reflect that fact. That's perfect, and a perfect lead into really what we're talking about today, the idea of, of uh, the changing workforce, changing, uh, you know, the knowledge aspect of it, as you mentioned. So first and foremost, the ultimate question to get it out there off the top, what is exactly a performance appraisal and what is its purpose? <laughs> What a great question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not exactly sure what an appraisal is. I thought you might know, say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know where they're, I know where they come from, and I think that answers the question. So uh, I'll defer that. But what it's designed to do is to increase performance <laughs> of, of your people. And, and this is what's so fascinating about this topic is if you look at the academic studies of the effectiveness of appraisals in improving employee performance. More than 90% of the academic studies show, show absolutely no evidence of employee improvement in those companies that conduct annual performance appraisals. Over 90%. That's substantial. So what exactly is it that doesn't work? What in your mind, in your research, your experience, why isn't it effective, as, as these studies indicate anyway? I think it's because it focuses on weaknesses. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of disadvantages to them, but its main, its main problem is that it focuses on weaknesses. And Peter Drucker traced the appraisal back to the psychological, uh, the psychology profession, basically, where, you know, people would come to a, a psychologist or psychiatrist, obviously with a presenting problem, mm -hmm. there'd be something to be diagnosed. There's something wrong with them. Otherwise they wouldn't be in your office. Right. That's that's the history and that's the origin of these things. So they have a natural tendency to look for weaknesses. And I think that's a huge problem because I think in business, you have to focus on people's strengths hmm. and put them where they're good and kind of downplay or even put them in positions that ignore their weaknesses. So what exactly would be the, the negative side effect, so to speak, if you are talking about someone's negatives or, or you know, areas of improvement, as you'll often hear uh, it being termed. Why is that uh, such a, why is there such a downside to that? Well, it's not that there's a downside to it. I think it's the way that the, the, 
the, the ritual, the kabuki theater, if you will, <laughs> of the performance appraisal uh, is, is the way it's set up, is that those weaknesses are going to overpower everything else in that appraisal, which should obviously uh, focus on some good things as well. In fact, HR people talk about, you know, the, the sandwich theory where you, you give them three or four you know, strengths right. and then one or two areas that need improvement, right? And I'm thinking, well, that's like taking a, you know, a dollop of dog poop and putting it in your favorite ice cream. <laughs> you know, what, what the mind is going to focus on is the absolute negative sure. and it's going to taint the whole process. So there's a lot of noise around the performance appraisal. You know, where am I going to get, how, what's my promotion going to be? What's my raise going to be? You know, am I going to get fired? All of this noise drives out effective communication about performance. So there's just got to be a better way to do this. Sure. No, I think that is fair. As you mentioned, the the focus becomes for that individual of, of okay, where am I struggling? Where do they think I have an issue? So I'm just going to put you on the spot quickly then. How do you then approach that? How do you address that? I mean, is that something maybe we'll talk about a little bit later with the other strategies? Because it can't be, obviously be ignored if somebody is struggling in an area. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, none of this None of the, removing the performance appraisal doesn't remove having effective communication with your people. Sure. I, I think what changes is the communication actually becomes effective and actually becomes performance enhancing, something that the, the performance appraisal, and I'm really speaking about the annual performance mm-hmm. appraisal, even if some companies do it more frequently, it's still, I, I do really do believe it's kabuki theater that just doesn't, you know, if you, if you look at companies and talk to them about it, oh, they, we do them late. It seems like a paper shuffling exercise to justify decisions that have already been made about people. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of theater surrounding it that just doesn't do anything to improve performance. Well, you mentioned the, the aspect there of sort of justifying decisions that were already made. And that's one aspect that I think you brought up in the articles and I've read also is that you know, it's sort of used to help in the, the idea of if you're going to fire somebody or, or using it to sort of protect yourself, you know, the, the law side of things. What's your take on, on that aspect of the appraisals? Right, right. And, and the legal aspect, right. the legal defense is, is the biggest one that's thrown for the, for the maintaining of these things. And it's absolute nonsense. There's a couple books out there, Tim, that I highly recommend on this, on this area. And one is called Abolishing Performance Appraisals by a guy named Tom Cohen's and then his author, co-author is Mary Jenkins. And this is just like the seminal work done on this. And what's interesting about it is Tom Cohen's is a 30-year labor attorney. Hmm. So he defended employees for like right. wrongful discharge and things like that. And so he goes through in the first part of the book and devours brick by brick by brick the argument that you need these things in court. In fact, he says a performance appraisal will actually hang you in a court of law before it will help you. A good attorney is going to be able to turn it against the company. Mm-hmm. So we live in, an, at least in the U.S., we have at-will employment laws, which right. means you can fire anybody, anytime, for any reason. Now, that's been, uh, that, that at-will has been shrinking over the years, and there's, there's many more exceptions to it than there were, say, 20 or 30 years ago. But the idea that you need a performance appraisal uh, because of the law is absurd. You do not. And, and if you want to fire somebody or document underperformance, I mean, you can still do that. And all these lawyers say you should still do it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, for the one or two percent that are, we have problems with, that we're going to let that two percent wag the dog. You know, we're going to let the tail wag the dog and, and constrict the other 98 percent. 
consent to this ridiculous ritual. Well, clearly, uh, not only yourself, there are a lot of people that you know, agree in this respect that uh, you know we need to get rid of this. We need to have different strategies. So let's talk about that a little bit in terms of you know alternatives to the idea of the annual or semi-annual or however often you want to do those appraisals. And one of the one of the aspects you brought up was this uh, key predictive indicators for knowledge workers. Is explain that for the masses, what that means, what the keys are, why it's successful, um, just sort of the the summary of it. And obviously, we can get some details as well. Right. I, basically, I offer three replacements to mm-hmm. the for, uh, to the annual performance appraisal, which is this key predictive indicators for knowledge workers, a thing called Peter Drucker's manager's letter, and then the uh, Army's after action reviews. So starting with the key predictive indicators, the, the basic tenant here is that, you know, we're a knowledge economy and most people today, or at least, well, a, a 25% of the labor force and probably a lot of your audience are knowledge workers. Yeah. You know, they work with their minds, not with their hands. Mm-hmm. And that means they own the means of production. You know, they, they come in to the organization investing their own intellectual capital. You know, in Henry Ford's day, he owned the means of production. Well, today, the knowledge worker owns it. So they're not there to serve the office. The, the office is there to serve them. And they have to work with their own mind, their own creativity, and all of that. The other thing is it's very difficult to measure the efficiency of these people because, you know, you can be sitting there at your computer and look like you're completely productive, and yet you, know, you could be on an eBay auction. Right. <laughs> so you, you have to make judgments about their output, not so much measure their inputs. The input measurements really don't tell you anything, like how long they sat in the cubicle or how long they were at work. Mm-hmm. That doesn't give you any idea of the, the, the value of their output. I live in wine country, as you know, in Northern California, and there's a great saying around here the wineries have, which is it's easier to count the bottles than to describe the wine. Sure. And, and when it comes to knowledge worker efficiency, it's the same thing. So what we need is we need some type of way to know that the knowledge worker is doing their task in in the defined way and 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 by the deadline that they were assigned. So what would be some key predictive indicators that might help us assess or judge the effectiveness of the knowledge worker? And and you know, I have a whole list of these things that companies can choose from. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't go through them all, but you know, things like customer feedback. What do the customers say about this person if if they're in a customer interfacing uh, job? Sure. How about interpersonal skills? Mm-hmm. You know, what a doctor would call bedside manner, your communication skills, your listening skills. These are critically important skills for, I, I would argue, any type of worker, but certainly a knowledge worker. Right. And how do we measure communication skills? I mean, here you are on the radio. How do we measure your communication skills? It's it's not it's not an easy measurement. It's it's because it's a judgment. So with I mean with these sort of indicators, I mean, I guess it's obviously difficult to talk about in, in general terms because it, once you're thrown into a situation, you can sort of pick out those different aspects. But I mean, do you have any general tips? Any any advice for those that are trying to make these judgments? As you said, it's all going to be sort of in the eye of the beholder if they're accomplishing these things. I mean, are there certain ones that are more effective to you? Certain ones that that you think you really should be focused on? I guess, where do you start when it comes to this? A great question. And it's very, very industry specific and even okay. firm specific. Like we have three KPIs that we like for professional knowledge firms, for instance, right. for CPA firms, law firms, things like that. But those same KPIs probably wouldn't work in a software company. They would have to develop or 
you know, pick other ones. The, the thing to remember about it is, you know, you don't want to boil the ocean. You only want a few of these. Right. If you have uh, 140 KPIs, <laughs> you're, you know, your team's not going to pay attention to any of them, and it's going to become just as ridiculous as the, uh, the annual performance appraisal. So you really want to focus on the three that really, really matter. And I believe it should be three that really matter to the customer. Hmm. How does the customer judge the success of the organization? Shouldn't we be holding our people internally to that standard rather than our own internal standards, whatever those may be. Oh, I think it's a great way to look at it, just to to put the emphasis on that side. And I also, I like how you mentioned just making sure that, you know, it, it does get some somewhat cumbersome when you have all these rules and this is what you're trying to meet. So uh, I think that's great advice, actually, to, to keep it succinct, but also focus it uh, on the outside aspect of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs said before he died at some point in an interview, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We <laughs> hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. Sure. And, and, you know, knowledge workers need autonomy and they also need to innovate, be creative. And, and they can't do that if they feel like they're being micromanaged. So they really have to understand what the task is that they're being assigned and, you know, how much authority they're being delegated and the resources and then the deadline to deliver that task. And then you kind of leave them alone and let them figure out the best way to do it. This idea that, we, you know, we can have a process for everything um, <laughs> doesn't necessarily work with a knowledge worker. I mean, no two surgeons approach a surgery the same way. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's checklists and things like that, but once they start and get in there, you want that surgeon to use their judgment. Yeah. Right? You don't yeah, want definitely. you don't want them to sit there looking at a checklist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that doesn't work too well in that in that circumstance. But but to your point, I mean obviously not all knowledge workers are going to be doing something to that effect, but it does really point out the fact that you need some of that uh, that freedom and that ability to make your own decisions. As you said, it's just going to start bogging things down. We talked about that idea of effectiveness and efficiency and it seems to fit right in with your uh, sort of your mind frame there. Right. Right. And and now I'll come back when we talk about the after action review to that whole effectiveness efficiency this distinction. Perfect, perfect. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, another part of uh, these alternative strategies that you've mentioned, and obviously other people uh, talked about and commented on, was uh, the idea of the manager's letter. Let's just describe that for us: what it might look like, what it might sound like, what makes it effective, uh, what exactly are we looking at here? Right. This is a great idea, I believe, from Peter Drucker, and mm-hmm. I, I traced it back to one of his. It's like 1961 or something book, Management Tasks and Responsibility, I think, where he first talked about this. But basically, and I'm just going to use the, the terms employee boss, uh, sure. even though I hate those terms. <laughs> uh, but the employee and the boss get together and they actually, the employee actually has to define the objectives of their boss. Hmm. I have to write out, like if you were my boss, Tim, I would have to write out what your objectives were for the upcoming year. Right. So what your goals and objectives are, your timetables, how it's going to be measured, things like that. Okay. Then I would write out my own. And then I would, we would also include performance standards. What are going to be the performance standards to measure us on our progress toward these objectives? Those could be measurements. Those could be judgments. It could be a combination of the two. What must we do to obtain those objectives? Am I going to have to go get further education? Uh, are we going to have to hire outside help or, or bring in consultants? What, re- what additional resources may I need? Do I need a bigger budget? Things like that. So all of these things are laid out in this management letter. And then both the employee and the uh, boss sign it, and it becomes the covenant between them. And then it's reviewed. Peter Drucker thought it should be reviewed uh, at least twice a year and updated. 
So sure. the difference between a manager's letter and an annual performance appraisal is one is looking backwards, right? It's kind of like timing your cookies with a smoke alarm. <laughs> the other, the manager's letter, is looking forward right. and saying, how, am, how is my performance helping the, the goals of the company strategically? And as, as you learn with these biannual reviews, you can revise it and make adjustments. Is this something you're seeing companies do, or I mean, have you have you had any experience with that? I guess what sort of is this going on? Is this something that's being effective for other organizations? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the if you look at the organizations that don't have annual performance appraisals, mm-hmm. according to the best research I can find, is some ninety seven percent of organizations darn near worldwide use the annual performance appraisal. So there's not many that don't. However, there are a few. And I learned about some of them from the LinkedIn article, from the comments from people. For for instance, I didn't know Adobe. Adobe does not use annual performance Hmm. appraisals. And I learned that from uh, the HR person who commented on my article. Also, Procter & Gamble doesn't use the performance appraisal. They use what they call a work development plan. And it's basically... Peter Drucker's manager's letter. Right. It lays out what your goals are because everybody at PNG works on a brand. So if you work on, you know, Pampers or whatever, mm-hmm. Tide, uh, lays out the goals and the strategy for the brand and then how your performance ties into that strategy. So it all works back to the strategy of the brand. And then it is signed between the boss and the employee and it is reviewed. I think they review it twice a year, but it, it could be three times a year. I'm, I can't remember on that. But it is reviewed between the boss and the employee. Well, I think it's interesting to hear, too, that, you know, a couple of companies there you just mentioned that are obviously, it's not just some, you know, kind of out there small organization. These are reputable places that you're talking about that incorporate something like this. So I guess my question would be, in your mind, what what would be the reason that people wouldn't want to do something like the manager's letter? Is it a matter of just too much work? Is it you're giving some sort of power or something to the employee as opposed to the hands of the company? I guess, what, what do you point to in this regard? Yeah, boy, you know, I, uh, I, I think when you boil it down, there's a lack of trust hmm. in organizations. Because uh, we hear over and over and over with, you know, whether they're, they're arguing for the annual performance appraisal or for the timesheet, which, by the way, is just as ridiculous in professional <laughs> firms. Well, if we didn't have this, how would we know what our people were doing? Right. Well, give me a break. I mean, if you were a good manager, a good leader, shouldn't you know what your people are doing? I mean, you live with them for 10 or 12 hours a day. You would think you'd have an inkling of what they're doing. And and certainly an annual performance appraisal doesn't tell you on a day-to-day basis what right. they're doing. That's true. I mean, that's called leadership, right? <laughs> and, and Or management. You have to know what they're doing. And at least the Drucker's manager's letter focuses you on objectives for the upcoming period of time that you can you know, actually have a benchmark against. So I would say, I would say fear and, and lack of trust with people. And, and then all these myths that surround the, the performance appraisal that we need them for the legal system or HR tells them, you know, that, that they need them. I think a lot of it is, and I, I got in a lot of trouble from some HR professionals <laughs> saying this, I truly believe it. Uh, I, I believe, you know, HR is unnecessary in a well-led company. It's hmm. like mommy and daddy department. It's just not needed. And I think HR loves these little performance appraisals because it gives them a KGB-like dossier on everybody that they can use as a power trip. (laughs) 
Uh, I, I knew at some point you'd be starting to, to go on the attack a little bit. I, I love it. That's what we like. That's what we like. By the way, all the all the views and opinions expressed on this show are of the guests and not of the host. Uh, are not too. Just in case. Just in case anyone of the legal side is listening. Uh, no, I, I mean, I appreciate, again, I appreciate the honest opinion on that. And, and you know, it's just a matter of us. We want to have this conversation. And, and we're looking to help the listeners any way it can. I mean, whether it's employers or, or managers, uh, we are looking to try to help out. So hopefully... Some of these ideas stick, maybe they don't, but we'll, we'll kind of see where it goes and we'll see if we get any feedback uh, you know, based on this show. But we are going to have to take a quick break here with our expert guest, Ron Baker, who is the founder of Verisage Institute. If you do want to listen to the rest of this conversation, go to localjobnetwork.com slash radio slash list. In the upper left-hand side, you'll see a search box. Just type in moving up the ladder, replacing the performance appraisal, and part two should pop up for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to contact us with any comments or questions for any of our podcasts here on LJN Radio, just shoot us an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.